I want us to think about a glorious way to live this morning. Based on the words of Jesus recorded in John chapter 12, it's on page 821 in your pew Bible if you'd like to look that up. The gospel reading for today begins with some Greeks who come to a disciple named Philip saying, we want to see Jesus. Now, the request of these Greeks brings us back to where we began this sermon series back on January 7th. Uh, just ignore these asterisks for a minute. Uh, this slide isn't working quite right, so just ignore them. Uh, the request brings us back to where we were on January 7th. The theme for the first half of this year has been seeing Jesus. That's our aim, is to see Jesus. On that first Sunday, I said that our aim throughout these first five months of the year were to focus our attention on Jesus and learn from him how to follow him better in our world and how better to see our world through his eyes. In that sermon, I mentioned an old gospel song with the words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The gospel reading for today helps us see Jesus' glory and grace. So let's dive into the scriptures with that same desire as the Greeks had. We want to see Jesus. Do me a favor. You're looking a bit drowsy right now. Join with me, all of you, please, in, in saying what the Greeks said. I'm going to ask you to say with me in unison, we want to see Jesus. Let's do it. We want to see Jesus. John 12, verses 20 to 33. We're going to begin with verse 20. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Our versions say meet. Uh, the, the word see is a little bit stronger. We want to see Jesus. Who are these Greeks? And when is this happening? They're Gentiles, meaning they're not Jews. They might be God-fearers. They, they might be people who were drawn to Judaism but hadn't yet converted to that faith. Or they might have simply been men who were fascinated with what they heard about Jesus and they were simply curious. They just wanted to get a glimpse of the famous person. The story takes place somewhere around the temple on a Sunday afternoon. The very same Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as crowds shouted, Hosanna. And it's the last Sunday Jesus had before his execution on a cross. The temple is packed with pilgrims who have come from the, for the Passover. And there's an inescapable tension in the air. There's a feeling that something has to happen, and it has to happen soon. The tension between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, especially the high priest and most of the Pharisees, has reached a breaking point. So let's go a little deeper into this story. As Philip and Andrew take the request to Jesus, Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. That's an unexpected and dramatic response to a simple question. Jesus pays no attention to the request and has no interest in the Greeks. What, what are we missing in this? This just doesn't seem quite right. Why does Jesus respond saying, the time has come? 
Up to this point in the Gospel of John, we've heard Jesus say three different times, my hour has not yet come. First time is his mother at a wedding in Cana is asking him to do something spectacular. And he says to her, Mom, my hour has not yet come. Twice when the people are trying to arrest Jesus and do him harm, even, even kill him possibly, he simply says, No, my hour has not yet come. You can't put a finger on me. And now he suddenly says, The time has come. Now, he's, he's added to that kind of feeling of, of the time's not yet by cloaking a lot of what he said to his disciples in secrecy, parables, things that were even difficult for them to understand, much less the outsiders. And sometimes when he'd do a miracle, he'd say to the person that had been healed or set free, he'd say, don't tell anyone. He told them to be quiet, but now suddenly Jesus says the time has come. You wonder if these Gentiles who came to Jesus to see him aren't some kind of a sign that Jesus has been waiting for. And now that the sign has come, he knows that the time has come. This seems to be the case. There was something in their arrival that said to Jesus, the time has come. Time for what? The answer is in one word, glory. The time has come for the glory of Jesus Christ. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the Son of Man is simply Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. How will he be glorified? The answer to that is, to say the least, surprising. Verses 24 to 26. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now you can hardly grow up on the prairies and not appreciate the glory of a farmer planting seeds and reaping a bountiful harvest. And yet... If you're a farmer, you know that this glory comes with enormous cost. It's not easy. To get the glory of the harvest, there's hard toil and sweat, dirty work, long days, short nights, and anxious waiting. It's hard work. Glory always comes with a price. And for Jesus, that price is death. The key word in Jesus' description of glory is death. Planting a seed in the ground is like a burial. The farmer treats the seed like he would treat something that is dead. He buries it in the ground and walks away with hope for a good harvest. Jesus, of course, is talking about his own death and burial. He's been telling, about his, his, he's been telling his disciples about his death for months now, but suddenly it feels different because it is different. The time has come. It is Sunday afternoon and before the end of the week, Nicodemus and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea will bury Jesus' bloody, broken, tortured body. They'll bury it in a tomb. And Jesus is dreading this. We glimpse his feelings in verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. 
Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Deeply troubled, he says. Actually, the word means agitated. He has a choice to make. Should he pray to be spared the death that is coming? It's the same inner struggle that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane a few days later. That scene is described in the book of Hebrews. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. That's in Hebrews 5.7. Loud cries and tears to the one who could rescue him. He dreaded this. Now we can easily see how Jesus wouldn't have wanted the pain of the cross. There may not be a more painful way to kill a person than by the Roman form of execution on a cross. Because most of the time it would take days to die. An extended time of torment and torture and death. Death on a cross was a physical and mental torture. I think we're behind one, Sean. There we go. Jesus knew that glory comes with a price. And it was going to cost him more than what we can imagine. It wasn't just the physical pain. Remember that Jesus was and is forever God. He is without any kind of imperfection in any shape or form. He is good beyond our comprehension. But on that cross, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, will have the sin of the entire human world placed on him. He will carry all of that sin in his own person. Do you follow the news? I know it can be depressing, and frankly, some days I just refuse to listen. But if you listen to the news, think about all the horrible things that people do to each other that are reported in the news. Think about all the horrible things that you've heard about just in the past week. That's merely the tiniest tip of the iceberg of human sin, including our sin, that was placed upon Jesus as he died on that cross. That had to be far worse than the physical pain of death. The death of Jesus on the cross was no accident. It was the central part of a divine plan to rescue a world torn apart by sin. And as readers of this gospel, we are witnesses as we watch Jesus choose to put aside his own pain and fear and embrace the divine plan for redemption. Father, glorify your name. It is for this very reason that I came to this hour. The story continues. Then a voice from heaven saying, a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come when Satan the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. 
Try to be a disciple for a minute. What, what's going on in your mind as you hear Jesus say these things? What, what does it feel like to you? Jesus, lift it up. What, what does that mean? Well, the word that he used has two meanings. The first meaning is just a very literal word where you lift something up off the floor in order to place it on a shelf. And you hope it's not too heavy. You literally lift something up. The second is more of a figurative meaning, and it means to exalt someone or something by lifting it up. We see this sort of lifting up or exalting something in sports. This was a summer day in 1999. And the man being lifted up is David Cohn, who has just pitched a perfect game. It is the 16th perfect game in the history of Major League Baseball. If you don't follow baseball, that just simply means that the opposing team did not get any person on first base, period. Not by a walk, not by a hit. They never even got close to the bases. The pitcher... Cone was lifted up. He was exalted by his teammates before more than 40,000 screaming fans in Yankee Stadium. Quite a picture. Don't you think that's what the disciples had in mind with Jesus being lifted up? Isn't that what they wanted? They just had a taste of that kind of glory that very morning. That very morning as people are waving palm branches and putting their coats on the road and shouting, Hosanna! Now that's something to remember. That's glory. That's what they wanted. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. John makes it clear to us what was going on because John says to us in chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus said this to indicate how he was going to die. This is not about a parade where Jesus is exalted. This is about Jesus lifted up on a cross in order to die. The disciples didn't understand this until Friday at the earliest, and then they were in such shock that they still couldn't figure things out. This is the picture of Christ glorified, lifted not on the shoulders of his disciples, but on a cross, a raw and hideous sight. His glory is revealed in his death. Glorified equals crucified. As Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, he's saying yes to this plan of crucifixion and death. The plan that he would be lifted up on the cross to die. He is saying yes to being despised and rejected. And because he was obedient to that divine mission, that divine plan, that mission of redemption, The death of Jesus on the cross was the time of his glorification and the time for passing judgment on the adversary. As Jesus is lifted up, Satan loses the battle. Now, we we take great joy from the image of Christ on the cross because we are part of that glorious harvest of redemption. We're the seed that has resulted from the sowing of the one seed and death on the cross. That's great news for us. We can look at Jesus on the cross and feel overwhelmed by his love, the love of God for his undeserving creatures. 
By his death, we've been redeemed from slavery to sin and from being caught up in its guilt. By his death, we've been adopted into God's family. By his death, we have the hope of transformed lives shaped by God's spirit into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we look at the cross and we sing songs like, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers around its head sublime. In the cross of Christ I glory, there for all was grace made free. None deserving, yet receiving life through death at Calvary. We've grown to love the cross and the image of Christ dying there for our sins. Now, the Greeks came to Philip saying, we want to see Jesus. We don't know if they ever did or not. But if they saw him in his glory, they saw him not in the temple, but they saw him on Friday afternoon on a cross on the Mount of Golgotha as he died. To see Jesus is to see the glory of God. But to see that glory in its fullness, we need to look at Christ suspended on a cross. Now, the triumphal entry was fun, and we're going to talk about that next Sunday a lot more on Palm Sunday. But the real glory is seen on the cross. Looking at the cross, we see God's glory in his total commitment to the salvation and redemption of a lost world. Lent invites us by looking at the cross to see the glory of God. At the same time, Lent invites us to look at ourselves as those who have made a commitment to follow Jesus. If the glory of God is revealed on the cross, what would it mean for us to live a glorious life? When you first saw the sermon title, you thought, well, glorious life, that's a nice way to live, wouldn't we all like that? But now that we've seen what it meant for Jesus, we begin to think, well, maybe what, what does that mean for me? We can share in, in that glory, Christ's glory. Jesus says that those who serve him will be honored by the Father. Let's look at this path of glory. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Note carefully these words. My servant must be where I am. Where is Jesus as he says these words? He's on his way to the cross. In less than a week, he will be on that cross. He's on the cross. Now, while on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus been, has been talking to his disciples for a long time about carrying the cross. We need to remember that everyone in the crowd that heard him say that knew exactly what that meant. The person carrying a cross ended up on the cross. That's how they did it. You carried that cross beam to the place of execution. You were nailed to it, and that was lifted up onto the cross. If you carried a cross, you died on a cross. Everyone in the crowd knew that. The cross is an instrument of death. So Jesus is literally calling us to die with him. That's how we share in his glory. We have to die. How does this happen? He tells us in verse 25, those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life will keep it. 
Our translation says, care nothing for your life. But the word hate that Jesus used in John usually means to reject. We must reject our lives, Jesus says. We actually sang that as, as our opening hymn this morning. We, we, we sang, lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Lead me, lead me to the cross. We have to die with Jesus. Now, Jesus rejected his life by choosing to follow through with that divine mission of redemption instead of giving in to his human reluctance to suffer. He chose to be despised, rejected, beaten, and crucified for the sake of our salvation. That's his glory. It's our glory, too. Paul explained this in Romans 8, 17. And since we are his children, we are heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. We, we too, reject our lives when we decide that our commitment to the mission of God has given, that God has given us is more important to us than our comfort, our safety, our security, what we own, or how much the people around us like us. But what is our primary mission? Just stay on this slide with me, Sean, okay? okay? We believe that our primary calling in life is to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to give our life to doing whatever he gives us to do, to be used by him wherever he takes us. Now, if we do this, we will live a glorious life. We will share in the glory of Jesus. It will, however, be the life of the cross, and the cross means suffering. If a person is looking for comfort, for security, for prestige, for an easy life, then you better stay away from the cross. You better stay away from following Jesus. Our world is changing. Here in Canada, people who take following Jesus seriously are increasingly facing the antagonism of those who seem to be currently shaping our culture. If we continue on the track that we're on, it's going to become increasingly more difficult for us if we take a stand for our commitment to biblical orthodoxy, to what the Bible says. Just look at news from the past couple of months. Christian students are now, they're, they're, Christian student groups on university campuses are being just disenfranchised from those campuses. They are not allowed to form as an official student group. They're being told that they don't belong. I've noticed this now in, in two or three universities this year, 2018. Christian organizations are losing funding because of their commitment to the value of life. We see that happening right now. Christians may sooner than later find themselves facing job loss because of their belief. Do you think that's hyperbole? No. A friend of many in this church has been a loyal member of the Liberal Party his whole life. I've known the man 40 years. He's run for office as a liberal, at least once, I think twice. That is no longer an option for him. He could not run as a candidate for the Liberal Party. That job is denied him because he believes that life is sacred. 
Christians are increasingly going to be faced with choices that will be painful. It scares an old man like me. And I've had it easy. Maybe that's what frightens me. The last 12 years of my vocation were spent at the U of M campus, working with a Christian student group recognized by the University Student Union. And we got along very well. Those days are numbered. That is changing. In 47 years of ministry, my salary has come from the giving of fellow Christians. 35 years in a church, 12 years with the Navigators, I lived because of the generosity of fellow Christians. A generosity assisted and encouraged by the tax breaks given by federal governments on both sides of the border. Those days also are probably numbered. Speaking up for what we read in the Bible about how God has created us to live is increasingly becoming unacceptable. We are being labeled as haters because we speak about life and living and humanity with biblical definitions. Old men like me, we don't fear for ourselves. We fear for our children and our grandchildren, what it will cost them to share in the glory of Christ. But if I understand the cross and what we see on the cross, then their lives have the potential to shine with far greater glory than mine has known because they will suffer more. Where will they find this courage? Where will we find this courage? By keeping our eyes on Jesus as, re- as he is revealed to us in the cross. If we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, you chose to suffer on the cross on our behalf. You chose to accept the pain, the humiliation, the shame, the rejection, the verbal and physical abuse for us. And that is your glory. We may have to suffer rejection and some shame and some abuse because we follow you. Give us courage by keeping our eyes on you to not falter nor grow weak, but to keep following, to follow you wherever you lead us, to speak up or to write a letter to a member of parliament and sign our name or to write a letter to a paper and sign our name. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Fill us with your grace. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.